Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, uh, which you also probably know you can download for free. But did you know under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written some horror novels for older readers, such as The Book of David. That one's broken up into five chapters, and you can download The Book of David Chapter 1 by Robert Kent for free. Or if you really want to, you can check back toward the beginning of the pandemic. I did a, a live audiobook. Uh, on this very podcast feed. So you could go listen to it and then pay cash money for chapters two, three, four, and five. It'll be great. Uh, as always, head to middlegradeninja.com for interviews with all of the best people, the back catalog of the show, written interviews with agents, authors. It will change your life. And that is all we have time for because I couldn't be more excited. We have Mary C. Moore, uh, literary agent extraordinaire, joining us. Mary, how are you this evening? I'm well. Thank you for asking and thank you for having me. I am thrilled to talk with you. There is uh, so much for us to cover, and I've got uh, questions upon questions for you. Uh, and I'm going to try and get as, as answers to as many as I possibly can. Uh, but before we start with any of that, esteemed audience knows I never summarize anybody else's biography or anybody else's book because I want to keep friends in the industry. Uh, so if you would give uh, esteemed audience kind of an overview of your background. Sure. Um, I came to publishing later on in life. Um, originally, I was in field biology, and I'm sure we'll get to talking about that a little bit. But um, And then in my about my early 30s, I made a career change. I uh, got my MFA at Mills College um, in Oakland, California, and, you know, was writing a novel and wanted to know what it was like, uh, you know, how to publish it. And back then, it was pre- um, pre-social uh, media, so there wasn't a lot of information about agents online. Um, and so I, you know, tried to get an agent and found the, the, the process to be really mysterious. And so I did the next next best thing. Um, I went and interned at an agency and fell in love um, and have been there ever since at Kimberly Cameron Associates. We're a small agency based out of Tiburon, California, here in the Bay Area. And do you at this point, having become a literary agent, feel like you would have the wherewithal to go and find a literary agent? That is a really good question. Um, I I do think so. There's so much more information out there than when I was looking for an agent when I was querying um, and so much more support. Um, and also just, you know, the the transparency of kind of the market and how, you know, how you would find your comp titles and things like that. But I also say that recognizing the fact that I have been doing this professionally for, you know, half a decade at this point. So I don't know that I actually can't answer that question, you know, with full certainty because I don't know. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, well, there's a lot that I wanted to ask you about. I, I read a quote from you that I love and I just want to share it with you quickly uh, and, and, and find out how this influences you as an agent. Uh, but you say you grew up in a rural and poor area, a child of uber progressive hippies in a conservative town. So I tended to be friends with other outcasts. I relate to characters who live in the forgotten margins. I know the struggle of having gaps in one's education and having to fight for intellectual respect because of how you grew up. Uh, so now I talk to you, Mary Seymour. Uh, you are a field biologist, former zookeeper, literary agent extraordinaire. So you've covered uh, the, the entire range of, of right brain, left brain. Uh, <laughs> how does growing up in a, in a rural and poor area, uh, a child of uber progressive hippies, how has that shaped you as a literary agent? 
Wow, uh, that's okay. <laughs> let me let me take a second here to gather my thoughts about that. Um, yeah, so you know, my my parents were of the of the belief that they wanted their children to be brought up with in connection with with the land. Um, they were probably you know ahead of their time because you know all the all the conversations that are happening against you know the big food industries and sort of the big pharmaceutical companies and things like that. Um, they were already. Uh, veering away from away from that sort of um, life, and so they brought their kids out to. We're talking in the middle of nowhere. We didn't have running water, running electricity for for a few for growing up for a few years, um, and so books were really the only source of entertainment I had besides, you know, the great outdoors. Um, and so I just became a avid, avid, avid reader. However, you know, the area that I grew up was also pretty poor, poor rurally, <laughs> pretty poor and rural. Um, and, you know, the education there, there wasn't a lot of opportunity for, for anyone, really. Um, and I was also not accepted for, you know, my parents being who they were. Um, and also, you know, it was a, it was a, it's a pretty tight-knit community. There's a lot of people who had grown up there whose families had been generational, um, and so, you know, there was always kind of a feeling of being on the outside. And then on top of that, I was a nerd who read a lot of books. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, it, it didn't mean making, it didn't make, uh, making friends that easy. And, um, because of that, you know, I was, I was sort of always kind of on the outside looking in, I felt like growing up. Um, of course now, you know, it, you know, looking back, I realized it was just a very small pond and a very large ocean, but, um, at the time that was all I knew. And, um, you know, in terms of education, I, I got really lucky because I got a full ride scholarship to my university, but, um, things like publishing and English and, um, you know, those kind of subjects were, were not even on my radar. Um, you know, if, if you were lucky enough to get into college from where I was from, um, you definitely, you know, studied something serious. And I say that with quotations for those of you who are not watching, <laughs> um, which would be the sciences. Um, and so that's the direction I went. And it wasn't until I was, I think I was counting butterflies in Costa Rica or something that I thought, oh, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write a novel. And I continued writing and, you know, I discovered, rediscovered a passion for it and thought, oh, what, I wish this could be a career, but I was already on my, my way um, being a biologist. And so, you know, I went and started working at the San Francisco Zoo and really enjoyed it, but um, found myself, you know, kind of yearning for more and, um, at some point, I think I saw I was cleaning the cleaning the newspaper of a cockatoo, <laughs> and saw an advertisement for a MFA program in English and creative writing at um, our a local college, and so that sort of sparked a aha moment and led me down this path. A message from the cockatoo. That's fantastic. <laughs> so that's a that's a, a big change. Were you still a heavy reader all through being a, a field biologist and, and and then a zookeeper? Uh, yeah, I was always a heavy reader. You know, I was a I was a heavy reader when I was a child to kind of escape from from um, the world I was in. Which I want to make it clear that you know my childhood was actually quite wonderful. You know, um, despite it being you know rural and poor I mean there was a lot of wonderful people that lived out there and you know looking back 
there was definitely a lot of of love and support coming from all directions. Um, it's just that education, and you know, when you live in a poor area, educa the education is not going to be something that um, is going to be supportive to to your career growth. So you definitely you have to work a little bit. You have to work harder, and and I think a lot of people can relate to that. Um, and you know, I'm straying from your 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 second question though. I can I can feel that. So uh, bring me back. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, mostly I just wanted to, to 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 get a sense of your love of books because this is uh, this is a big shift to to make there in your thirties uh, from zookeeper. I I read that you were working with the big cats, so you're you're I mean you're you're full time you're full in it right with the, with all the access to all the animals. You're living already a lot of people's dream, uh, but then that you get the message in the cockatoo and you say, nope, I gotta <laughs> I, I gotta do this one eighty. Uh, I guess I guess to be a little bit clear on the story, it's it's a, there's a little bit of drama behind it. You know, the San Francisco Zoo. Um, at the time, I was working with the big cats. Is the same it co coincided with um, the the famous tiger attack. Um, so, not to get into too much detail about that, but um, I was the youngest zookeeper in that department at that time, um, and so things kind of got transferred around and changed, and they transferred me to working in the barnyard with the goats, which was also lovely, but not not as uh, stimulating for me personally, and which started my mind on that track of okay, you know, maybe maybe zookeeping isn't something that I want to do. Gotcha. <laughs> Or some of the books that you most loved uh, from from uh, childhood, and then we'll transition to what sort of books do you love now? <laughs> um, yeah, I that was another thing that I was really lucky. So my parents, um, they were part of a hippie commune, or it's not commune, ashram uh, in Gilroy, California, I think. And um, although they didn't, they weren't allowed to stay because they got pregnant with uh, me and you're supposed to be abstinent, but um, they had a lot of good friends in that, in the community um, and some of whom worked in a San Francisco bookshop. And so um, they brought a lot of books to our rural, you know, out to our rural property. And so I got really lucky. I got a lot of um, and feminist books too, or at least what I would consider feminist. Um, so people like uh, uh, Patricia C. Red you know, which is some of my, my, probably one of my favorite of all time. Um, the, you know, um, I, the, the Enchanted Forest Chronicles. So there's four books and it's, I, I love those books. It's about a princess who wants to become a dragon's, um, servant instead of, you know, marrying a prince and the humor and it's really fun. And then also Robin McKinley was another one, um, that I read a lot of. Um, she's, you know, she writes female characters who, defy the the stereotypes especially back then uh, Patricia McKillop and um, Mercedes Lackey Anne McCaffrey was one of my favorite even as a 12 year old I was reading Anne McCaffrey um, and I read all of her series um, I also read you know people like Terry Brooks and um, you know the Sharanara series and I I read Tolkien but briefly just once and so you know my fantasy was always very heavily female written and female driven, um, which, you know, given that I was outside of any kind of community that was interested in sci-fi or fantasy, to me, that's what fantasy was. <laughs> so when I joined the uh, publishing community, it, I, you know, it was, I had an awareness of it, you know, um, going to mills and being, you know, the discovery that genre fiction wasn't real fiction or, you know, 
again, air quotes here for those of you who can't, aren't watching. Um, I raised my eyebrows, esteemed audience. I apologize. <laughs> Um, you know, I mean, in MFA programs, a lot of times the genre fiction is, is they're just, it's dismissed. It's, it's often not considered real literary, um, you know, and, and, but then being exposed to people like, you know, Octavia Butler and, and further, you know, feminine, um, and then trans, um, transsexual feminine, feminine books as well. Like, I still just thought that that's what it was. And then when, you know, all of a sudden publishing industry happened and I was, you know, shopping, fantasy science fiction books it was it was a wake-up call to be like oh no <laughs> there is it's mostly heavily male you know mm. written so that's been that's been an interesting but I think I happened to join the publishing industry as things were shifting um, and I just kind of rode that shift a little bit I am as we record this uh, about two-thirds of the way through Parable of the Sower for the first time mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm wondering one why have I never read this book before uh, and two where where's the movie where's the television series this should have already blown up oh my gosh learning about you know how books turn into movies um, has you know I'm not surprised now because I always used to think about that too like why isn't this book a movie and now now I kind of know why but when I was a writer, I, uh, I, I, I tend to have the opinion that, hey, you know what, I don't need a movie. I've, I've, I've got the book right up here. I've, I've seen the movie. Uh, and nine times out of ten, the, the movie, or the, yeah, the movie tends to be a bit of a letdown after a wonderful book. Mm -hmm. There's that rare, rare film that really hits it or in some cases surpasses the original. I think that definitely can happen, um, you know, but I agree that nine out of ten times the book is better than the movie. Um, well, I wanted to uh, ask, I've got all kinds of questions for you about what you're looking for now. And, and uh, well, you know what, let's start there, because I know esteemed audience is, is leaning in. Like, Mary Seymour sounds amazing. I want to know more about her. Is she interested in the kind of books that I'm writing right now? Uh, and I assure you, esteemed audience, yeah, she probably is. <laughs> so what, what kind of books are you looking for? Definitely. Um, yeah, so I've definitely opened up to pretty much all fiction at this point, um, you know, spanning from middle grade to young adult to adult fiction. Um, you know, in the past, it's definitely lean speculative, but um, it's, it's, that doesn't mean that's all I'm interested in. I have found the, the one common thread that seems to go through most of my books is the, the, the idea that, you know, that there's tropes, but at the same time, the author breaks those tropes. They have something different to say, um, whether or not, you know, uh, it's coming from a marginalized point of view or it's, you know, feminist or, um, you know, but whatever it is, or it's, you know, coming from a different culture. Um, I have found that that's, that's where, what I'm most interested in. Um, and, you know, anything, anytime an author has something really smart to say, um, without it being kind of heavy handed, um, I find really interesting as well. So, you know, plus beautiful writing. And so I'm pretty much open to all genres as long as it's fiction. Gotcha. So what, um, what, what, what would be a really, uh, smart thing? Uh, what's, what's an example of something that would, that would spark your, your brain and, and get into, I assume, Quirrell Giant and the, and the Monkey King. Uh, would would really spark your brain and, and, and get you going. Um, 
Definitely. Yeah. Um, well, girl, that's a great example. Girl, Giant and the Monkey King um, is by my client, um, Van Hong. And uh, she, you know, she she does a Percy Jackson twist on with Vietnamese mythology. And the main character is an 11 year old Vietnamese American girl. Um, and so the conversation um, that happens throughout the, the book is is one of family. It's you know, she's got a really interesting relationship with her mother. Um, and it's also like her struggle to a want to fit in um, by denying her culture, but at the same time, you know, learning about her own culture. Um, and you know, it's I, I I think it's a struggle that a lot of kids are are going to be going through or have gone through and are going to be going through. I mean, I look at my my daughter is um, half Mexican and she's bilingual and she's only five years old, but she's already kind of navigating that in between area of you know who am I? You know, she she calls herself you know, Mexican. And, and um, then she asks what I am. And, you know, we have have those conversations. Um, so I would love to see, you know, especially books for kids, that where the characters are exploring their identities more, um, but not in a heavy handed way and not with an agenda by the author um, or by the book. So I think Girl, Giant and the Monkey King does a great job of that. And um, the second, the sequel is coming out soon. And, and you know, the, the artwork is done by vet, a, a pair of Vietnamese illustrators, and it's absolutely amazing. Um, and everybody should check it out. <laughs> and then another good example would be um, another book that my client C.L. Clark, their book uh, just released this past March um, called The Unbroken. This is an adult fantasy, military fantasy, but um, she really kind of breaks down, you know, the sort of the, the colonialism of you know what the what what the what happens after colonialism um, from both you know the the colonizer and those who've been colonized um, and it's it's a really fascinating really really smart read um, granted it helps that she's you know she has her PhD and I'm going to get this inaccurate so I'm not going to say exactly what it's in but it's something to do with colonialism. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> So what was it, uh, and were both of those books that were queried to you? Um, so what was it about those particular projects that, that right away struck your interest? Was it just a really well-written query, an amazing online presence by the author? What, what was it that uh, got you excited about wanting to represent them? Actually, no. Um, for me, you know, uh, both of them came, queried me. I believe that, I believe The Unbroken was a, hit mad uh, pitch um, from a long time ago but um, and then Van was she queried something else originally um, so for me my interest is actually in the author themselves so you know it might not be I know that it might not be the first project I sell um, but if they I feel that they have something to say something interesting to say and they're a good writer you know um, but they don't have to be you know brilliant at everything um, I just want to know that they have something to say that they have a passion um, and and when that's the case then I know that even if this project doesn't necessarily sell um, we we will work together to find one that that will um, and and I would say about half of my clients it's been like that where it's not the first project that sells it's it's the second or even the third um and you know i'm i'm getting a little bit more as as i get further on in my career and i have more clients i have to be a little bit more um I'm not sure the word for this 
picky, I guess. Um, so yeah, the ones that I'm finding now, or, you know, maybe they have, you know, maybe it's a little bit more appealing if they have a big online presence or things like that. But particularly for debut author fiction authors, I don't, the online presence doesn't um, really affect my decision on whether or not I offer them representation. And, you know, these days, social media is not the healthiest place. So um, I, I don't necessarily demand that of my clients anymore either. Excellent. I'm routinely seeing that uh, the some authors with just the world's biggest social media presence have a book that comes out and like, oh, here we come, brace yourself. And then it does fine, uh, but it doesn't do tremendous things. And then there'll be some newcomer with no social media presence that we've never heard of before that just blows everybody away. Yes, definitely. Um, and I think that's the one of the greatest joys and miseries of the publishing industry is that you never know what's going to be the next big thing. Um, and that's why, you know, I think a lot of agents kind of repeat the mantra of don't don't chase the trends because of this. Um, you know, if 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 you're a if you're a quick writer and, you know, you know that you can kind of pump out a book quick and, and a, a quality book quick and it, it can land on a trend and, you know, you're happy kind of getting those getting those books out quickly and being on trend, um, it can definitely work for some authors, but, um, you know, the type of clients I work with, I, I tend like, again, as I talked about their, what they have, something they have to say tends to be, um, on, you know, looking forward, looking into the future or looking into the, the, you know, the new conversations that are happening online or, you know, social conversations that are happening, um, globally. And, um, I think that those stories really find their voice um, in a more solid ways than than people who have like a ton of like five hundred thousand followers on on Twitter or something. So for the uh, writers out there who might be as neurotic as I am, which I assume has to be a fair percentage of the audience, uh, you say that the author doesn't have to be uh, brilliant necessarily at everything. What are the things it's okay to not be brilliant at? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, you know, maybe you know. I would say that, you know, maybe your plots aren't totally tight or, you know, maybe you throw in an extra adverb here and there, or, you know, maybe you're not able to write a perfect pitch. Um, I mean, that's all fine. If, if you have something like, and I, I think I keep saying this, this, this um, phrase over and over again, but I think if you have something to say um, and you know, you're able to, to weave it into a story that, that speaks to people, um, you know, you're, you're, you're gonna, you're gonna get there, um, whether or not it's, it, whether or not it's a long road, which it is often for, for most of most, most writers, um, or if it's a very short road for, you know, those lucky few, um, yeah, you don't have to be perfect at everything. You just have to like stay true to your vision of, of why you're a writer and why you want to write. So if I uh, query you and I say, dear Mary Seymour, I heard you on the Middle Grade Ninja podcast. You sounded amazing. I must have you represent my work. Uh, what are things do you, I know you get the first 50 pages. What are you going to look at first and what's most going to stand out to you so that I have a chance of maybe at the very least getting a request for a partial or a full? Sure. Um, so yeah, I tend to look at the actually, I'm a, I stray a little bit from my colleagues in this, whereas I ask for the first 10 pages um, versus the first 50. Um, but I, you know, I, what makes it, what stands out to me the most is when um, a author has a firm grasp of the genre they're writing in. 
Um, and this doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be the savviest market pitch writer in the world, but if if you read widely in the genre you're writing in, um, it's it's going to be evident in in your pitch and in your comp titles. Um, and you know, it is the agent's job to really kind of understand, um, you know who to, you know, who to pitch it to and, you know, where it fits in the market. So, you know, I don't expect new writers to know all of that, but if you do and you're able to kind of weave that into your query, that'll stand out a lot to me. Gotcha. So how, how much are you reading uh, on a regular basis? Cause I'm assuming you've got uh, an inbox that's overflowing like most agents. Uh, and if it's not currently wait till this thing hits, it will be, <laughs> we'll get, we'll get it there. Um, so how much time do you have to read non-client work to also be keeping up with uh, what's going on in the market? Oh, it's, it's, a, it, it comes in waves. It goes up and down right now. Actually, weirdly, I'm reading a lot of nonfiction. Um, I just read second nature by Michael Pollan. I'm reading hooked, which is the, the, by Michael Moss, which is that, um, which will make you very angry, but it's really good. Um, you know, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm reading cast, I'm reading, so yeah, I found myself drawn to nonfiction and I think because it helps me to kind of break down what's happening in, you know, current social conversations, um, without necessarily relying on social media to, to kind of get my information and that in turn helps me, um, you know, when I'm, when I'm reading my clients work to, to, to just bring, you know, maybe a different eye or different perspective to what they're, you know, what they're, they're writing. Um, that being said, you know, I would probably say, ideally, I read what I read one fiction book a, a month, um, whether or not that means it's something that I picked up and I skimmed and was like, oh, I, I didn't really enjoy this, but I'm going to read it. So I know what what everyone's talking about, or um, if it's something I devour within a day. Um, NK Jemison, I'm looking at you. <laughs> Um, so yeah, and then I also try to read across age groups, right? Because I represent middle grade and young adult and, um, adult, I have to kind of make sure I have a balance of those three as well. Although I do confess to reading more middle grade than, than normal in the last couple months, just because of the current climate. <laughs> um, yes, we'll definitely forgive you. <laughs> yeah, we'll be fine with the, with the middle grade and Instagram. <laughs> And, um, you know, and actually right now I, I closed down to submissions because it was, you know, I was just getting so many. It was crazy. Um, and, you know, I've been talking to my colleagues and they're all getting about 15 a day. It's it's a pretty people have for some reason people have more time to write these days. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I read quite a bit, but probably not as much as I I would want to more than the average person I'm guessing, but not enough still. I, I can't even imagine what would happen if I, uh, if I read as much as I want to. <laughs> Although I had a, a friend in uh, college uh, who I always think of, who we went apartment shopping uh, in an afternoon and he was reading his way through the Harry Potters. Uh, and he killed off the second and third book over the course of two days while we were apartment shopping, mostly in the backseat of the car. And I thought, okay, well, you read them very fast. And if I ask him anything about the book, by God, he had the information. 
to just savor it. Yo, you woofed down a fine meal. It was. It <laughs> wasn't a bag, a, a bag of White Castle burgers, my friend. That was that was filet mignon, and you <laughs> you killed it. <laughs> I'm probably more like your friend, especially back then when I had you know I would just consume books so quickly. It was you know it was it was pretty wild. Um, I I don't as much anymore, but yeah, I. It's just a way of reading, I guess. <laughs> no, it's I, I'm I'm jealous, uh, especially when I, I'm I've got a week where I've got three different authors coming on for a pod for a podcast piece. All right, I want to read all three of these books. How fast can I go <laughs> if I don't do anything else this week? <laughs> so, uh, lots of questions about uh, about how you're going on to to represent clients uh, and what you're what you're going to be doing for them and and all kinds of great stuff, but I do want to spend just a little bit of time talking about uh, Kimberly Cameron. Uh, so I'm sorry, it's Kimberly Cameron and Associates. Is that right? Yes. So why of all the wonderful literary agents out there that esteemed audience could choose from, uh, aside from the fact that Mary C. Moore is there, what makes Kimberly uh, Cameron and Associates uh, a great agency to, to be represented by? Sure. Um, and this is actually kind of leads to a broader question of the difference between kind of the big New York agencies, I, I, although they're not necessarily all located in New York anymore. So, sort of a bigger agency in what is considered um, a mid-sized agency. And then there's a boutique agency, you know, and, and Kimberly Cameron and Associates would at this point be considered mid-sized because we have more than more than three um, agents. And um, but there's not a lot of difference between um, boutique agencies and mid-size agencies. Um, so normally, in the case of the bigger agencies, what you have is you have in-house um, foreign rights agents, you have in-house contracts department, you have an in-house um, film to book, book to film agency agents, um, and so you, you kind of have all that support in-house. Um, and with the smaller agencies, we we usually have sub agents, you know, so agents who we've worked closely with in the past who, um, you know, only work in in sub rights um, or we have a relationship with a different book to film agents in, in Hollywood. Um, and so, you know, there's there's those are that's one difference between the two. Um, and then another difference would be kind of the amount of of attention you're going to get. So I like to say that, you know. Although we don't have the big agency name, so you're not going to have kind of the, the big reputation, um, what you are going to get is constant communication from me. Um, I have a very select client list. I keep it small so I can manage um, so that I can respond to every single one of my clients, even the ones who aren't published yet, um, or maybe the ones that, you know, were published at one point um, and are struggling to find their sophomore project. Um, you know, a lot of times those, those type of clients um, may get dropped by a bigger agent or a bigger agency. Um, whereas, you know, in my case and, and most of my colleagues' cases, we, we work with our clients long-term um, until we get them published. Um, you know, and, and also it's important to, to kind of recognize what you as an author are looking for. So, you know, if you really kind of want that big splashy debut that everybody's talking about that's going to go to auction at six different um, imprints, which can be awesome and exciting, and I would, trust me, would love to have um, something like that happen for one of my clients, um, the odds of it happening at a smaller agency with a smaller, um, you know, it, it's, it's a little bit, it's definitely smaller. So, 
you know, you have to really kind of consider when you're querying those agents. And I know there's that, there's that lingering question of like, well, what if it's the only agent who makes you the offer? <laughs> but um, if you have a choice um, and you do have a choice, you know, even when you start querying, it's something you should be thinking about. Um, that would be, you know, to take into consideration. So you might get that big splashy deal from the bigger agent, or, you know, you might have a closer, you know, constant communication relationship with someone at a smaller agency who will, you know, work really hard to make sure that you feel supported through your journey. Um, so there's, there's a lot of contrast to that, but I would say that that would be the biggest draw for most of my clients is that they know that they can reach out to me and I will be, I will get back to them within 24 hours. Um, you know, so, yeah. Fair enough. Um, lots of, uh, questions, uh, on the, on the back of that. I'm trying to think what to ask first. Uh, well, one thing, what, uh, so a small client list, how many clients are you representing currently? I have about 25. So yeah. I, 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 so that you're going to take somebody else on how many are you taking on approximately per year? I try to keep it under 30. Um, you know, I, I'm a little bit right now, currently a little bit burnt out just as we all are. So in order to make sure that I'm you know, am there to support my clients, that's why I've been closed for, you know, a month, two months now. Um, but I'm hoping by the fall that, you know, I'll be open up and I'll be pretty hungry because I've been closed for so long. Um, you know, so I keep it around 30, um, give or take. And sometimes, you know, there's wiggle room because, you know, I'll sell a client and then they have a three book trilogy that's, you know, going on for the next six years. So, you know, even though I'll be kind of working with them and helping them with their sub rights and, and things like that, um, I won't be doing heavy editorial with them. So I'll have a little bit of space in my kind of editorial um, to to bring on someone new who needs a lot of editorial work. So, um, uh, 25 to 30 clients and you're going to kind you're going to get back with me within 24 hours if I'm your client and I need something, how often, um, is it comfortable then if, if, uh, if I'm one of those select 25, how, how, how okay is it for me to contact you? I don't know. Every two days. Uh, hey, Mary Seymour, I had uh, questions about uh, I, uh, something about cats. Uh, thinking about writing a book about them, and you're a zoo, you were former zookeeper, so you might have the goods. Is that is that cool if I if I uh, arrange for an hour long phone conversation so you can give me the details on cats for my new book, possibly? <laughs> yes, um, I will say that you know normally it comes in waves. So if if I'm in the middle of contract negotiations with a client, then we're pretty much in constant communication. Um, or if we're doing heavy editorial, um, if we go out, or if we're going right at we're about to go out on submission the next week, um, then there's a lot of you know, especially from newer, newer clients, they have a lot of questions. And I, I always tell them, don't be shy. Like, this is a partnership, we really need to be working together. Um, I mean, that's the reason why, you know, you're working with me. Um, you know, because a lot, I think a lot of authors are hesitant, there's this weird power dynamic between authors and, and agents, um, which is like, I, I'm hopeful that it's changing um, with the advent of transparency online and social media. But um, I know it's probably not 100%, but um, you really, it is a partnership. You know, we we don't exist without you and and we, you know, we're, we should be there to support you through your publishing journey. Um, and so, yes, if you really need to talk to me for an hour about cats, um, I will be there. But I also have learned to set my own boundaries and, you know, because that's the other thing is, 
you know, if an agent can't set boundaries, then they're going to get burnt out and, and that's not going to be helpful for anyone. So um, that's part of the process of, of evolving as an agent. Well, then let me be the one to ask these questions since uh, I'm presently you haven't made an offer of representation. Maybe that's coming after the show, but <laughs> as of this moment, not that yet. Um, so um, I'll go ahead and ask the dumb questions, and that way the folks that are maybe going to get that sweet offer will just be able to listen to this, and they won't have to ask these dumb questions. Sure. What are those boundaries, and, and what's pushing them? If I had a bad dream and I want to talk about it, am I pushing it at that point? Uh, how often is 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 me over contacting you? Sure. Um, you know, and this is this is very this is a very individual question. So this is this is my own personal sort of response. I know that many agents are are very different. Um, but in my case, you know, I tell my clients that you know weekends I probably won't even look at my email. Um, you know, and so if you have something happening over the weekend, again, it gets a little blurry if we're in the middle of intense stuff happening, like contract negotiation or editorial things like that. But in general, like you know, I, I don't really, or late on Friday night, I probably won't respond to your email. Um, and then when it gets, you know, personal, it depends on how far we are in on, in our relationships. So, you know, with newer clients, we both tend to be a little bit more professional, a little bit more, um, direct, um, you know, and I'm, I'm at that point still urging them to like reach out with questions and, and, you know, discuss with me, uh, you know, for the most part, most of them are pretty shy. Um, and then if, if, you know, it's the random case where they're a little too aggressive or a little too chatty, I might, you know, just not respond for, you know, right away, I'll respond the next day and then say, okay, yes, you know, and I'll give them a, a kind of rundown of, of what they want to know. Um, you know, the thing about personal stuff is it's it's a difficult line to, to, to walk because, you know, personal situations can definitely impact your writing. Um, and so I want my clients feel, to feel comfortable, for example, if they get sick, you know, or like for, here's a good example. When I was sick with COVID, um, back in August last year, you know, I was so sick that I couldn't work. And so I had to, at some point, you know, email every single one of my clients and just to let them know. And it wasn't something that I was comfortable announcing online or talking about, you know, necessarily publicly, but, um, at that point, uh, I'm perfectly comfortable talking about it now, but, um, at that, so, but I did, you know, make sure that everyone knew what was going on and, and vice versa, you know, so if there's something big happening, like, you know, change in the family, pregnancy, illness, um, things like that. Um, and I also want to be there for them. You know, I want to, you know, send them baby shoes when they have a baby and, and kind of, um, I'm not great at birthdays though. I'm just realizing that right now. <laughs> <laughs> no. um, you get a nice contract. That'll be my birthday present. We'll be we'll be good. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, it evolves as as we get more comfortable with each other, though. As 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 we both realize that we are behaving professionally, you know, then the personal connection will get, grow deeper as well. Gotcha. Um, and so like in an ideal world, we get out of the pandemic. Uh, I'm assuming that you want to spend some time with your clients when possible. Like, hey, if we're both going to be at the same conference, let's hang out for a bit. Let's, uh, let's if you're in town, come by, stop by the agency and see me or things of that nature. Definitely. I would love that. You know, over the course of my agenting career, I have only met, now looking back on it, two of my clients. Um, and actually neither of those are my clients anymore, you know, so 
I would love to meet some of the clients that I've been working with for, for five years or something. So um, it will, it, and there was, you know, whisperings of that before the pandemic hit. And then obviously <laughs> not anymore, <laughs> but hopefully, yeah, hopefully in an ideal world, um, I, I would love to meet my clients for sure. Let's talk a little bit about this uh, stupid pandemic because sooner or later, all conversations uh, lead to the pandemic. I am uh, optimistic. I I've mentioned this enough times on, on, on the podcast that I'm sure esteemed audience is getting sick of it, but I am choosing to choose to interpret Zack Snyder's Justice League as a positive omen. Like we're back on the right track. We were, we were way off for a bit with the Joss Whedon wandering in the, the darkness of the world, but now by God, the super friends are good again everybody's getting vaccinated we're gonna be okay um hopefully knock on wood so how obviously getting covid uh, in august uh, would would have impacted your work how has the pandemic impacted you personally your work and how do you see it impacting publishing i'm assuming there's already been some direct impacts and how do you see it uh, continuing to be an impact going forward yeah um definitely i would say interestingly you know, when it first hit, there was all this sort of, you know, oh my gosh, you know, it's the it's the end of the industry, it's the end of, you know, economic ruin and all this kind of stuff. And interestingly, I would say the first seven to eight months was actually really robust. There was still a lot of buying, um, a lot of deals being made, um, a lot of books, you know, even, uh, you know, it, it was tougher if you had a book releasing. So a, a book that released in, in the, during the pandemic, um, you know, had a tougher time of it because there was no, you know, in horse, you know, the bookstores were mostly closed, the libraries were mostly closed. Um, there really was just kind of online promotion, which, um, but more people were reading than usual. So I would say in general, the book industry did fine up until about January of this year. Um, and I, I, when I, I don't think it's, it's doing terribly now, but what I have noticed, and I think a lot of agents would agree with me, is the there's been hints of, of you know, burnout. So when before an editor would take about a month to six weeks to get back to me on a manuscript, now it's it's you know turning into four months, um, and the deals you know the deal announcement pages are just a little bit smaller, um, and so the general sense that I'm getting um, is that the the pandemic burnout that everyone has been talking about, you know, like the New York Times did a did an article on it on kind of like the white collar uh, burnout that's that's sort of hitting everyone right now. Um, it it's hit the publishing industry um, more on a personal level, but it's seeping into the professional lives. Um, so I think just things are just a little bit slower. It's harder to get someone excited about something. It's harder to get, you know, a big book deal. Um, it's harder to get even someone to take a book to acquisitions at this point. So that's, that's, it's slowed down, but I have no doubt that, you know, give or take, probably in the fall, I'm guessing it's going to rebound pretty strongly because people are going to, you know, take the summer off, hopefully be vaccinated, go and see all their family, get back in the office. Um, and as the world itself picks up again, um, you know, I think the industry is going to pick up again. But you as authors probably won't see that um, too much. It'll be more, it'll have more of an impact on, on agents. 
Obviously, there's a lot of burnout. I was just reminded of my probably my favorite headline from The Onion uh, over the last year, although there's so many great ones. Uh, but this one was something about the way society was exposed as complete illusion over past year, really getting man down today, which, yes, <laughs> I imagine that that probably would. Uh, <laughs> but uh, is it just burnout amongst uh, editors and agents that, that's accounting for the slowdown or, or have budgets been reduced? Uh, until publishers have a better idea of what's going to be available, what marketing options, what, what what all is causing this? You know, I don't have a full insight to that side of it, but I have heard, you know, I mean, smaller, a little bit of reduction. But I think, I think it's, I really do think it's more of a, a person burnout, not necessarily the in, like the companies themselves burnt out. Um, so it's just the kind of thing of, of you know, say an editor needs the marketing. Um, person's opinion on a title and whereas pre-pandemic times or even like last year that 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 kind of communication would have taken maybe an hour to a day and now maybe it's taking three days you know and so it's just it's just and the the accumulation of all of those those sort of communications like being a, just a little bit slower and everybody's just a little tired is just making everything move a little bit slower and that's just that's what i've noticed um again um this is coming this is my own opinion um and there's no i don't have any facts or numbers behind that really to to kind of back it up but i do have a general sense that um the slowdown does seem to be mostly personnel related and not necessarily um financial knock on wood that's good um so i I'm still I'm still trying to be positive. We got four hours of Zack Snyder, baby. The world's a better place. Um, and I'm hoping that people are going to be emerging from this as more devoted to reading than they were before because they've had the time to reacquire the habit and really um, hopefully fill the hours with... I mean, you keep, there's only so much PlayStation a person can play. And sooner or later, you're going to need a book. <laughs> oh, 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 there's some good PlayStation games. <laughs> That's true. Are you a, Are you a gamer? I am. I call myself a gamer light because I don't own a console. Because if I did, I wouldn't get anything done. <laughs> I downloaded that game, uh, Sky, Children of Children of Sky. Um, and that's already consumed way too much of my time. But it's a lovely game, and I, I do highly recommend it. Um, but in terms of readers, I you know I also think that there's a lot of the younger generation, um, you know, generation, I think they're called Generation Z, um, you know, are big readers. They really, and they're, they're big, you know, influencers too. Um, and, you know, I think reading has become uh, cool again. Um, you know, I know everything's cyclical, but, you know, if you look on, you know, you look on Instagram, you see the bookstagram, you look on TikTok, you look on even, I mean, Twitter to a small degree and, conversations happening around books um you know there's a lot of youth driving these conversations so yes i definitely think even when the pandemic you know as as your positive outlook is say the pandemic's over by july <laughs> um, where yeah i i think books will will pick up again and and the reality is is that people always need stories um whether or not they get turned into films that become you know reach a wider audience or you know resonate with someone who writes their own story um i don't think that's ever going to slow down um the the format of it might change but um the stories themselves will continue to be written 
Uh, so I've got a couple of uh, questions about starting off, and then I kind of want to walk through the process of be imagining to someone to become your client, what that's going to look like, uh, how you're going to work together. But I did want to ask you uh, about a, a, a quote that I'll find here in a moment from you. I'm big on uh, when I find an interesting quote. Let me write that down because uh, if I try and remember it on the spot, I won't do it. Ah, here we go. Uh, so in an interview with the Darling Axe, uh, you said if you could change one thing about the publishing inter industry, what would it be and why? And, and your answer was much higher salaries across the board and expanded hiring, but especially for entry level positions. This would support the younger, more diverse staff. So that's a great idea. Why has publishing not read this interview with the Darling Axe and, and, and gone and done that? Where, <laughs> why is that not happening? Um, well, okay, first is not my idea. Um, there's definitely been multiple people calling for this uh, way before you know I, I did this interview. Um, if you look at the Lee and Lowe kind of diversity baseline survey, um, you know, there's there's it's it's very stark the 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 diversity, the lack of diversity that happens in the industry, um, particularly in positions of power. Um, the higher up you go on the ladder, the more homogeneous it looks. Um, and you know, I, I have this sort of urban legend of you know there was an editorial assistant um, working for you know an imprint, and her boss came in and told her, you know, you really need to be wearing I want to say they're like Chanel suits. Or something like that and the assistant looked at her and said I cannot buy a Chanel suit on you know the salary that you're paying me and the editor looked at her horrified and said this is your salary this is what you live on <laughs> oh. um, I mean you know it's it's I think it's an urban legend based off of something that probably actually happened um, and th that was probably you know 10 15 20 years ago um, but this industry did come from historically it was you know, wealthy people in, you know, wealthy men, I should say, um, in back rooms, smoking cigars and making deals together, um, creating, creating books. Um, and there was always sort of this, you know, oh, talking about money is crass and, and kind of um, concept. And, you know, and that's obviously changed, especially as like the imprints start being bought up by the bigger publishers and, and the consolidation and the court kind of, as they call the um, corporate, um, corporatization, what was the, what would the term be? Something like that, that, uh, you know, now it's become much more of a, less of a sort of back in the room smoke, you know, like, agents going on drinks and making a deal with an editor at that point, which that sounds fun to me. <laughs> but, um, you know, with that, there's been increased diversity, but it's still really, really low. And part of the problem with that is because they pay such low salaries, it's, it's almost nearly impossible to afford to live in New York City on the salary that you're paid as an editorial assistant. So the type of people that get the editorial assistant positions are the ones that don't need to live off of them. Um, and then, you know, there's, Editors, I have so much respect for editors because they are just work to the bone. You know, they have to, they're, they're project managers. They're not just editors. They have to project manage everything about uh, a, a book. And so you're looking at everything from the cover design to the title design to, to marketing. All of that is filtered through the editor to me and my client. 
Um, and, you know, although sometimes I, I do manage to get them in the conversation with the actual teams um, and the teams are always lovely and supportive, it's still the onus falls on the editor to communicate everything to us. And um, and we're not their only book, obviously. Um, and then a lot of time assistant editors are actually doing that those kind of jobs for, you know, the, the their their higher ups. Um, so there's a lot of burnout because there's not enough positions and not enough assistants out there to to help the editors. And then, um, you know, it's a small pain. So I, it, there's a big barrier of entry for um, people from different backgrounds. Steve, the audience knows because I, I try to make it my business to ask every uh, publishing professional I've had on the show, um, what are you personally doing to increase diversity in publishing? Although in your case, I think just a, a basic perusal of your client list will answer a, a good portion of that question. Um, but what is Kimberly Cameron and Associates doing to increase diversity in publishing? And what are you seeing publishing overall to, to make corrections to this? Well, uh, I can't say that I see a lot of things happening in publishing to make correction. I, I have seen some, you know, some higher, some, some um, editors, you know, with diverse backgrounds being hired, um, you know, and there is an attempt to address it. Um, you know, the, and, and I would say actually editorially, you know, it's, there's always, there's already kind of an awareness um, that the diversity is needed. It's, it's, when you start getting into places like marketing and um, PR and you know the financial and, and things like that, there and market marketing particularly, you know, because I've had I've had manuscripts, you know, I've had an editor get really excited about a manuscript and take it to acquisitions and have it turned down by marketing because they didn't think they could sell it, right? Um, because it was from an author from a diverse background. So you know. I can't really speak to what publishing is doing because I'm not sure they're doing all of that much. Um, but I can speak to the fact that, you know, the newer generation working in publishing is is pretty passionate about changing that. Um, and so hopefully, hopefully that will change, um, albeit probably slowly. Um, myself personally, yes, if you look at my client list, um, you know, it, it didn't start out to be something that I was necessarily fighting for with awareness. Um, in the beginning, you know, I just, I signed clients I liked and I signed clients that, you know, I felt had something to say. Um, and coming from, you know, I came from a fairly diverse place. So, or I always just had a variety of types of friends. Um, and so it never occurred to me not to have that kind of client list. And then, um, you know, and now, but, but I still was doing it kind of blindly. And so now that there's, you know, listening to the conversations happening around, um, you know, the industry, the diverse, the lack of diversity and, and also the social conversations happening around racism and, and, you know, kind of all that stuff, I've definitely moved forward with a little bit more, um, awareness on how, you know, how I'm, I'm building my client list. Um, but it's just, it's on top of what I'd already built before. Well, talking about uh, that, that those entry level positions, um, I know that probably Kim, Kimberly Cameron and Associates uh, is the exception, but you're there as an assistant for two years. And this is after you've been, a, you've been making those big zookeeper dollars, right? 
as uh, <laughs> is, is, is a change. So what does that look like for you? Are you able to, to, to go into being an assistant for Kimberly Cameron full time as your sole job? Or was that on the side for a bit? Uh, that was on the side. That was on the side. Um, she does have, uh, the, yeah, there is one office position that you can do full time, um, full time, but it's, you know, it's, it was, it, it's a complicated situation. And this is something that also agencies are changing and need to be changed. Um, that, you know, cause there was always this idea that internships were unpaid, especially at smaller boutique agencies, because, you know, we're, you can't really afford to, to bring on someone as an assistant. Um, and the, the idea was that it was an apprenticeship. Um, and that was always sort of the, that was the basis, you know, in the past. Um, and that was the basis for the big New York agencies as well, um, which is, you know, obviously changed and it changed in the time that I was there. <laughs> um, unfortunately not in time for me. <laughs> <laughs> but um sure you were very happy for for everyone else <laughs> yeah i'm very happy for everyone else who can, you know um but i i have to say doing it in my mid-30s you know I, I i had a lot of privilege coming into this and so i i can't deny that you know i was able to make it work because of my privilege as well so um i wouldn't have been able to make it work when i was younger but i was able to make it work in my in my 30s um and maybe that's why it happened the way it happened um but you know, for those those people in, in their mid twenties, um, it really there really needs to be a, a broader base of support, financial support. Um, and you know, there is sort of a lot of pushes push for diversity within um, kind of the agent communities. Um, and you know, the the AALA, um, which used to be known as the AAR, um, has developed. You know, it's called Agents for Change, um, and their whole their whole mission is to diversify our side of the industry. Um, and they're doing some really, really fun things. So um, hopefully things will start changing. So esteemed audiences, looking over your biography, pouring over your manuscript wish list, which I assume they're doing right now. Stop it, esteemed audience. Listen to the rest of the conversation, then get on there. Um, one thing that I assume is going to jump right out to them and jumped right out to me uh, is that you are a green witch. Is that right? Uh, yes, yes. So I identify as a green witch. Um, and for further explanation of that, I would say that, you know, um, if you have leanings that are anti-pagan, perhaps, it's it, I might not be the best fit for you. Um, that would be um, the reason I even state that. Um, it was, it was, a, it was, I debated for a while uh, mentioning that, but you know, I do really feel that witch in general is something that was uh, the something that was used to to oppress women for for years and years and years. And I can feel that there is like a reclaiming of that term um, happening, particularly here in California on the West Coast. Um, you know, I see it happening. Um, you know, there's there's some really interesting witches of color on Instagram that um, you know, I think they, you could follow them on Instagram called the Witches of Atlanta. Um, and there's there's just an interesting conversation happening around what it means to be a witch, um, and it's too long and involved to talk about that here. But um, I would like to say I put it out there so that 
those people, those people who are aware of that conversation happening and are maybe perhaps, you know, bringing it into their uh, point of view and their books and their voices um, know that I would be someone who'd be really interested in reading that. Fair enough. <laughs> I almost never ask people about that unless it's right there on your website or you're very public and upfront about it. Because I, I see that, and I think, well, now, does this mean that you can use magic to get me a better deal on my book? Because I want that to be what that means. I'm brewing potions as we speak. I'm brewing potions as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> um, to clarify, green witches tend to be more, um, it's about it's about uh, the earth. It's like, so the connection to the earth and, and, and growing and plants and animals and things like that. So it's not, not quite the kind of the magical and the rituals that, that maybe you associate with like uh, typical witchcraft. It sounds infinitely more practical, but less fun. <laughs> you know, that would be a good way to describe me. I'm, I'm more practical, but maybe less fun than, <laughs> than your, your classic fantasy characters. So. Uh, any agents out there who are listening who, who happen to be more magical witches, come on the show. I want to know uh, what kind of spells you're casting, what, uh, how that comes in handy in your agenting life. Uh, me. I'd love to hear more about it, too. <laughs> So, okay, let's talk, uh, getting get back to a little bit more practical. So I've sent you the world's best query. Uh, you're interested in me. So you're, you're evaluating. You're, you're getting 10 pages instead of 50. Let's start there. What can you learn in 10 pages that's preferable to the 50? Um, so I think it's, it's general just your prose style. Um, you know, because I'm looking at, they look at your sample to see what the prose style is like. Um, so if the pitch interests me and I think, oh, cool. And then the author interests me, um, then I'll look at the 10 pages and I'll be like, okay, cool. You know, they've got, they've got a good style. Um, you know, and so then I'll, then I'll ask for the full because I'll know, you know, I need to, or, you know, then I'll ask for maybe 50 pages, um, or I'll ask for the full. Cause I, I was speaking to, um, someone, a, an author, um, and I was asking her actually, I said, does it make sense for me to ask for the partial? to not get your hopes up too much, you know, and I, I kind of did an informal poll amongst authors that I know that I could chat with nuance about, not necessarily online. Um, and it seemed like the consensus was, yes, when you ask for the partial, there's less, there's less intensity to, to that. There's this feeling of like, okay, they're interested, but not necessarily, um, you know, I'm not checking my email every, every hour. Whereas I know I, I'm very, being a former author myself, Aquarian author myself, I'm very keenly aware of the uh, power agents hold over the submissions box and the power our responses can have. Um, and so I try to be as kind and as clear and as vague <laughs> as possible um, so that, you know, an author doesn't get the, you know, intense hopes up. Well, what happens when you read the end of my amazing 10 pages? Like, what? No, I need more. I need more right this moment. And you don't you don't have it. Uh, how quickly do I need to send it to you if you if you ask for additional after those 10 pages? I mean, you can take your time. Um, ideally, you'd have it. If, it. if it was that amazing in the first 10 pages, I would imagine the rest of it was pretty polished. Um, but, you know, if, if, if you kind of, you know, you sent your queries out and then you're like, wait, you know, I wasn't quite, you know, another beta reader came back to me and like, there's some changes I need to make. 
you know, you can take a week or two and, and kind of polish up and, and, and do that last anxiety riddled <laughs> revision. Um, and that would be, that would be totally fine. Um, there's, there's no rush on our end basically, unless, you know, unless an offer is on the table and then things change a lot, but yeah. No, I like to wait until after I've hit send to find that typo and then just ruin my week like no what did i do yeah well i mean you know you should know that typos don't there was a lot of i think i think in the beginning of i guess twitter for for uh the best example you know there was there was kind of this rush for agents to fill that void of questions you know that are this the void that that authors all had all these questions about and so we you know there was a lot of sort of like uh kind of canned responses um things like oh yeah like you know watch out for those typos and you know clean up that manuscript and things like that and i think it went a little overboard in making um you know th those authors that are do basically we were looking for the author to do the work and do the research before they query but the authors that have already done all the work and done all the query done all the research and then sending out those queries those are the ones that are the most anxious and so they catch the typo and they think, oh, I'm going to be black holed, you know, like never, you know, I'm going to be blacklisted. Like he's, they're never going to read me ever again. And the reality is, is if, if you're that anxious about the one typo, you're probably in a really good position. <laughs> Let me ask this. And this is one I'm guilty of, although not for a long time. Uh, what if I send you my manuscript and then a couple of days go by and I do get an amazing, um, uh, an amazing bit of feedback or some changes that I can make, uh, and then I send it to you again. Does that send the signal that I'm not confident in my work and that, uh, whoa, let me see if I wait till you send the third version, because that'll be the best version, or does that make you more interested, or is it uh, does it not have an effect in either way? Um, for me, not anymore. I, I think this is this is actually a, a question that would, I'd be curious to hear what newer agents say versus older agents um, or more experienced agents, because you know as I as I grow and and get further on in my career, I've come to realize that it's you know it's not it's not important. You know, if if you feel that you have a couple more revisions in you and you want to send them to me, I mean, yes, don't send them and like don't fix like one line and then send that updated manuscript. But if there was, you know, a scene that you wanted to adjust um, and the agent's still sitting on your manuscript, feel free to send it and say, hey, like I updated this, like, would you want to see the new one? Um, because, you know, the reality is, is if an, if an agent's asked for your full manuscript, they're interested in it. And if you're doing work on it, still it's, manuscripts are never finished. Um, now that being the case, you can't do that with a query letter because, you know, you don't want to like overflow our inbox, but um, with a full manuscript, if an agent's asked for the full manuscript, think of it as the opening of a conversation. And, you know, you can kind of reach out to let them know, hey, I won this award for the first chapter. Hey, I did, you know, got this feedback from another agent and I did, I revised based off that feedback. Um, you know, hey, um, I have, hey, I have an offer. <laughs> like that's, that's the key one. Um, you know, and, and if that helps to make you feel a little more comfortable reaching out to them, um, I think that is. Newer agents might be a little bit more, um, and this again, it's all individual, but I, I think that newer agents tend to be a little bit more uh, hard, hard line about their, their boundaries because they're still figuring them out. 
okay, well, here's, here's a fun question. Let's say that you check your inbox and you've got the initial query that I sent you and then the three updates I've sent you since within 24 hours. At that point, do you even read the, the manuscript sample or is it just no? <laughs> stop, I stop mean, then, then, my you, then you're getting into something, something which is about, you know, the client personality, right? Like, if you send me a query and I ask for the full, you know, and then within 24 hours, you send me three more updates, that's going to signal to me that that's the kind of client you're going to be. And I would have to just really, really, really love, you know, think that I could get a lot a really major deal for that project because, you know, I'm going to have to manage you <laughs> as a client. So, um, you know, and it's not that, I mean, there's plenty of authors like that, but I, you know, I have a small list and I'm, I'm, to me, it's important that I'm able to manage my clients. And if I can't manage someone, if, if one client is taking up all my attention, then that's not going to be beneficial for my other clients. So I would probably just, you know, give it a week or two and then probably just politely pass on your manuscript. <laughs> well, by that time, I'll have sent you 18 or 20 pages. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, let's say that uh, you read the 10 pages, then you request the full. Now we're getting warm and you like the full, you're interested. What happens next? I will, okay, there'll be a couple of things. If I really like the full, I'll probably just reach out and say, hey, let's schedule a phone call. If I, you know, if I've read the full, at this point in my career, if I've read the full, I'm pretty much on the verge of asking, of, of offering you representation. Um, it means that I have a vision for it. It means that, you know, I, I guess, oh, that's a good one. I'll rewind a little bit. So when I'm reading your manuscript, when I, so the reason, part of the reason it takes us so long to get back to you on your, on these full manuscripts, because it, it, because it's not like reading a book, you know, it's not, when I pick up a manuscript, I'm not sitting down, like we talked about your friend there, reading Harry Potter in two days. Like I, I do that with books often, but when I sit down to read a potential client manuscript, I'm actually going through it with a vision for, okay, this fits this genre this fits this particular age group okay so now that i you know and this is my vision for how i'm gonna i'm gonna take it forward like i i really think that i could pitch it as the next xyz or you know i i know the editors that would be perfect for this um or even if i don't know the editors particularly because there's a lot of turnover um you know, I know the imprints that would really like this book. Um, I can, I can, I can, I can visualize this being on Bookstagram or at the book subscriptions, you know, or on the like shelf at Barnes and Noble. Um, and so that's happening while I'm reading the manuscript. But also, what's happening is like, but it needs these changes. You know, like the voice is a little too heavy for the 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 age, or you know, um, this scene, like this character doesn't need to die, or this character maybe should die, or you know. Uh, and, and so what I'm doing is I'm reading through a manuscript, developing a vision for it. And if at the end, when I'm finished, if my vision is clear, then I 100% will probably be offering you representation. Um, if my vision is cloudy and I'm not sure, I might sit on it for a little bit. And then I might, then I might do like think about you as an author, think about do I want to take you on um, and potentially talk about like things like maybe next projects or, you know, how, or, you know, if my vision's a little cloudy, but I really like the author, 
I, you know, and then they get an offer of representation, I would probably step aside because, okay, like I, I wouldn't necessarily be the right agent, but if they don't get an offer of representation, I might reach out to them and have an honest conversation about that and talk about like, what else are you writing? Like, how else can we make this work? You know, what are your vision? Um, and things like that. Gotcha. Okay, so in that case, as you're reading the manuscript, you're not reading for fun. You're, you're, it's, it's business. It's what am I going to do with this? Um, are you reading to where you get to uh, a stopping point? Um, if it's the world's greatest story and you've never been so entertained, but there's absolutely no one you can think of that might actually want it, um, does that just you send me a nice note that says, man, I loved your book. Sorry, it's never going to sell. Have a nice life. Or <laughs> what, what happens? No, I'm very clear about that. Just because I don't have a vision for it does not mean that it couldn't sell. I mean, there's been so many agents that are wrong. Editors, too. You know, like you you hear, I mean, you hear the Cinderella stories, right? That, you know, so-and-so got 20 rejections before their book hit. I mean, those, those happen, you know. And so... When I read something and I think it's really good, I'll either I'll ask one of my colleagues if they're interested, or I'll send a a, a very nice note and tell them, you know, I'll, I'll be very clear. I'll say I think this has a ton of potential. I think you know you as a writer have a gift. Um, I just I don't have a clear vision for it, and I I wouldn't know what to do with it, and so I wouldn't be the right agent. And sometimes what's what's nice about those notes is sometimes those authors will come back to me with their next project like a year later. Um, and this, this has happened a year later and I'll, I'll end up signing them because their next project is much tighter, much folk, more focused, like right within a genre, something like that. So, okay. Um, you know where this book's going to go. You've got a clear idea of, of what to do. You're, you're eager to sign me. Uh, so then the next thing I assume we schedule the call. What does that look like and how can I go about ruling myself out during that call versus how can I let you know that not only am I a cool person to talk to, but that I'm going to have more books and you can look forward to representing me over a career rather than just this one novel? Sure. Um, so this this tends to be surprisingly should be the easier part for you. So if you're, you know, if you're a writer and, and you've written something that I'm, you know, have a clean clear vision for and you know at this point I'm guessing you've this probably isn't the first thing you've ever written um because it would be a big surprise to me if it was at this point usually you know the book the the manuscripts I offer on these days are usually uh you know maybe the second or third that an author has written um or you know is the first manual length manuscript they've written but they've written short stories um you know novellas things like that so um, when we get on the phone, you know, I'm going to be teasing out of you what you like to read, um, you know, what your vision is for the book, um, what the, what your vision is for your career. Like a lot of times, you know, for example, middle grade, you know, if I have a middle grade manuscript that I'm really excited about, let's say it's a middle grade contemporary with maybe a little bit of a magical realism twist. So what I'm going to want to know is, okay, I'm really excited about this book. I have a big vision for it. I want to take it to editors. I'm gonna to hope to get you that deal that you want, that I want for you. Um, so we'll say optimistically, that's all gonna happen within six months, right? Um, if that happens, what's your next project? And then if, if, if that author says to me, oh, well, I wanna write you know, an adult uh, horror novel, <laughs> then I might be a little bit like, okay, but you're not gonna write any more middle grade, you know? And it's, it's kind of the question of, 
I'm totally fine with authors being having separate genres, writing in different genres, um, jumping around, things like that. But what I'm looking for is to kind of build your career. And by building your career, it's it's a couple books, right? And a couple books within the same genre, within the same age range. Um, and when I say within the same genre, it can it doesn't have to be like explicitly like one mystery and then another mystery, but something along the lines of okay, if you're going to write an adult mystery and your next project is an adult thriller, that's great. I think I've just ripped myself off your client list. That's too bad. But what if I'm going to use a really clever pen name for my my adult whore, uh, and I'm still going to be producing middle grade? Is that just going to be dividing my attention? Is that not going to be your interest in representing one, but maybe not necessarily the other? What potential uh, issues might that might that bring up? Oh, I see. No, no, that's that's clarify. I'm going to clarify this. If you're continuing to write middle grade, that's fine. Then you can write other things, whatever you want. What I'm talking about is like if your your first book you ever wrote was a middle grade, I come out and like this middle grade is great. I'm calling you up. I'm offering you representation. You're like, great. Now I want to write horror, <laughs> adult horror. Then it's like, okay, but what about middle grade? And you're like, no, 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 I'm not writing any more middle grade. Then that's when it gets a little complicated. But if you if you're gonna continue to write within the genre that I'm offering representation for, I will probably be more than happy to represent whatever it is else that you want to. And I have a lot of clients that do jump around. But I, I do make it very clear that, you know, I, I'm looking for you to to build a career and to build a career. You need to be, you know, it's it takes about like actually six. I think the average or this was this was a few years ago. I don't know if this is true anymore, but it's about six successfully published books before you make it financially as a career author. Um, that's like the average. And so what I'm looking for is to get you to that point. Um, and that will probably be within the same genre and same age range. Um, and then, you know, if you want to like jump around in other genres, I'm happy to explore that avenue with you. It's particularly, here's where it can actually be beneficial is if I don't sell that middle grade project. Let's say I sign you for a middle grade project that doesn't sell. You're like, hey, I got this adult horror in my drawer. Let's try that. Let's, let's, you know, switch gears for a little bit. Um, we can also do that. But um, it's more of I want to make sure that the client, like when I offer, I'm going to be, I'm going to be guiding you in a certain lane and that you're okay with that lane. So, okay, so we're getting to the call. Now, I'm assuming before this call happens, you're going to do a bare minimum of Google me uh, ahead of time? Oh, yes. I probably do a deeper dive than that. Okay. Um, what, what does that mean? Um, I'll probably find every social media platform you're on, personal and professional. <laughs> um, you know, I'll look for, you know, I'll, 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 you know, I'll look for things like, you know, warning signs of something that maybe like we would not be personally compatible. Um, but in general, you know, I'll, I'll, I hope to see a website. That's kind of what I would hope to see. Um, and if I see a website, I won't actually do as much digging because I'll just kind of think that the website is, is enough information for me. But if you have no online presence, then I might kind of dig around and find like your old LinkedIn profile or, you know, the, the write-up that your local newspaper did about you, <laughs> you know, um, and in part it's, it's kind of just to kind of check out like that you are who you say you are in a lot of ways. Um, or, you know, if, yeah, I think that's really kind of why, but, it also would be to know kind of what you're, you know, what you're, again, it's, it's, yeah, what are your career goals? I'm looking for career clients. I'm not looking for one book and done kind of things. I mean, I know with like nonfiction, that's, that's something that's done. Um, and maybe, and maybe with bigger, at bigger agencies, maybe that's something that's more common. I don't think so though. But in my case, I'm looking for someone who wants to be a career author, 
Um, and so usually, you know, there would be some sort of groundwork of online presence that would show that they are working towards that. I say that, and then I think like half of my clients didn't even have a website when I signed them. So, you know, it's not a make or break kind of thing. <laughs> right. That does make uh, a question of uh, if you're looking to see I am who I say I am, how often does it happen that somebody's not who they say they are? Um, well, I think in uh, this is a little bit sticky, but sometimes, you know, especially these days, you know, I'll get writers that that won't disclose like they'll they'll say they're writing something from you know uh, like a young adult novel maybe set in Chicago and the main character is a young black man or young black boy um and then you know I look up the writer and they're not they're white um things like that where I'm really kind of looking for you know and and there's a lot of conversation and depth around this about um own voices and what it means to be own voices and and um you know, the policing of own voices as well. Um, so I I say this with gentleness, but usually I'm looking for someone who's writing from the point of view of, who who has the background of, the same background that the character, the main character does. Uh, so, okay. Um, that's not an issue in this particular case. And this new scenario, I'm the perfect author with the perfect book. Everything's going well. You're looking at my social media and I'm very political, but our politics align. Uh, is that an issue? Should I back off? Cause I'm going to be ticking off some potential readers or do I just go right on being me? How political is too political? What are some other things that we maybe want to pull back on a little bit for our social media when we're going to be facing evaluation, uh, from literary agents? Well, you know, it depends on what you're writing. You know, it's, it's, I, you know, I don't, I don't think, I'm going to say that I'm not going to, I'm going to say not to police any of your social media. If, if you're someone who's political and, you know, you're going to, that's, that's who you are and that's how you interact on social media. Um, you know, that's, I don't think you should necessarily pull it back with the hopes of attracting a particular agent. Um, you know, I myself personally am a little bit quieter. You know, I don't, you know, I pulled back a lot from social media over the past year um, and, you know, might not even notice that you're that way online. Um, but if there's going to be an agent who's not going to sign you because of what you're saying online, you're not going to have a good relationship with that agent anyway if that makes sense, because it's it's who you are and, and how you're interacting with the world. So policing yourself just to get an agent long term is going to be is probably going to have, um, you know, consequences that, you know, for yourself that you don't appreciate. Whereas, you know, an agent who signs you be like just not I, I think an agent shouldn't sign you despite your social media presence. They should sign you because of your social media presence. That's part of the factor of why they sign you. Um, and so I think, yeah, I think that would be my response. Gotcha. So, okay, we get past this, everything checks out. Uh, you are assured that I'm gonna be producing quality middle grade books from here to eternity, and we're gonna have a wonderful career. Uh, now, six months, an appropriate window. I don't expect you to give away your, your secret sauce about how you're gonna attack the different editors and, and find the best deal. Um, but how involved am I going to be? What's our relationship look like while we're out on submission versus once we once we have somebody? Um, so, you know, when 
the the submissions can be can vary like the submissions can take anywhere from you know a few weeks to to a few years um and it, it varies for every single like it varies individually for every single one of my clients um and you know sometimes we go out on submission with multiple projects um you know and and it's so i can't really say how that's going to look for you particularly but if i get you a deal um, and, you know, we signed the contract, woohoo, and everybody's happy. <laughs> um, and, you know, maybe we sign you a contract, let's say it's a two book deal, because that's, that's kind of the most common at this point. Um, you know, then there will be a little bit of a transition to your editor. Now, hopefully your editor is someone who is stable. Um, I have had it happen where, you know, a client, we had a big deal, we had a great editor who'd been there for you know, years, and then, you know, just as she turned in her final draft, that editor left, and then they had a new editor for a month, and then that editor left, and then they had a new editor, you know, um, so that does happen, um, so then... Horror story, I am horrified for that writer. You know, there it, it is, it is hard, but at the same time, like, I'm there for them, you know, so I'll, there, I'm there to lean on editorially if they need me, um, and I'm there to talk talk to the publishers and make sure and usually the publisher gets together and you know then there'll be an editor and they'll you know move forward but yes so that does happen but ideally we get you an editor who's there long term and um then there will be a little bit of a transition where you will be working with the editor um on some of the stuff that you would have been working on with me if if um you know if you hadn't gotten your deal and um marketing and publicity will start stepping in, we'll start having conversations. Um, what I will do, I'll kind of hover a little bit. So I tell my clients to always um, CC me on every communication so I can know what's going on, like kind of as a broad picture. Um, I won't necessarily enter the conversations with the marketing team or with the editorial team or whatever, but I will definitely know. And there's, there's, there's uh, you know, um, moments like, like, for example, okay, copy editing is done. I need to know when that moment happens so I can send that finished manuscript to the film agents, for example. Um, or, you know, cover conversations. I need to be, know what's happening in the cover conversation so I know if my author is happy or unhappy. I mean, usually most of my clients will let me know if they're happy or unhappy, but there's some quieter ones that just are kind of like going along for the ride. And if I don't see any of the conversations happening, I won't know you know, so, um, but then it becomes more of a, I'm sort of, you know, just kind of keeping an eye on things while things progress, um, and then stepping in if, if I'm needed kind of idea. Okay, so my editor and I are chatting. Uh, she's got lots of great ideas, but she desperately wants me to include the word that, which I have carefully taken out because I wage war against the word that, and I can't take it. Do I get you involved? Do I, I want to be polite to the editor. Don't want to, don't want to be too aggressive, even though adding that when I have taken it out is the worst thing a person could do. Uh, <laughs> do I come to you and say, Mary, help me? She's putting the that's in, or should I try to resolve that on my own? And if it starts to go bad, then come to you. What, what's, what's the best way to do that? Um, it's probably better to involve me early to just, and even if involving me just means you're venting to me, you know, you're just, you're just saying, ah, like, I don't want to put the that's in my manuscript. Um, and then maybe I can kind of discuss with you, well, this is why, you know, the editor wants to put the that's in. Is that still not good enough for, you know, like, what are, what are your reasons for being angry? 
um, you know, and yeah, so it's, it's better to involve me earlier. So I'm aware of how you're feeling. Um, and so it doesn't kind of like bubble up and then, and then kind of explode. So long as she doesn't put a space before the ellipses, yeah. uh, right after the ellipses, instead of before. Otherwise, it's it's, it's all that war. That's <laughs> that's too far gone at that point. Yeah. <laughs> Double space at the end of a sentence. Oh my god. <laughs> that's my pet peeve. I'm like, take them out, all of them. <laughs> um, but at the same, we'll say it's a little bit more substantial than that. And I'm assuming that before we ever get to the the official contract, we've already talked with the editor. We have some idea of what types of changes they want to make to the manuscript. But say it's that situation you described where the editor we signed the contract with is there a month and now they're gone. And the new editor comes in, like uh, Joss Whedon replacing Zack Snyder and wants to wants to mess with my baby uh, and, and, and make some more significant uh, decisions. Is there a point where we walk away or do we do the best we can with the contract that we have and try and and uh, you know, have a that list book next time. Well, I mean, most contracts you're not going to really be able to walk away. You know, like once you sign that contract, you're you're kind of you're kind of locked in. Um, if you guys can't, because I mean, there are kind of clauses that you can you can. There are ways to to end the contract, but you know, there's there's that's going to mean a lot of repayment, a lot of burned bridges, a lot of you know that kind of thing. Um, usually editors who come in are, are, everybody's very nice, actually. There's, there's, it's a, editors tend to be one of the nicest sets of people that I've ever met. Um, and so usually we can work things out. I've found that honestly, like editorial has not been problematic, um, for my clients. It usually is the cover. Okay. So the cover is the, the cover. What do we do then? Yeah. The cover is something that, you know, and and it depends, but I will definitely, yeah, then then it's like you bring me into the conversation um, and we will discuss with, like, for example, how comfortable you are bringing up your dislikes of the cover. Um, if you're not comfortable bringing it up, then I will bring it up for you. Um, you know, discuss with the editor. Um, even you know, I can say, like, I can do it privately. So you're not even involved in the conversation. So you don't even have to, like, it depends on your level of social anxiety, right? But I can definitely help you through that. Um, or if you are comfortable, because because often when when it's a cover problem and you know I'm re relaying your your stress to the editor, um, things get lost in translation. And so um, you know it's it's best if you're able to like kind of be honest and upfront. But I can kind of coach you through how to do that as well before you do. So um, you know, but it's it's taken on a variety of different different ways. But that tends to be the more common problem than the um, than the editorial. I, of course, uh, podcaster extraordinaire, have had conversations with the world's finest editors, so I would be fine with this. But if I'm the average author um, or, or back in the day, wouldn't it be better I come to you and let you do it since you're used to dealing with editors? You've got the proper finesse versus me going in and uh, trying to be polite, but not being uh, not being an expert at, at, at talking with editors and maybe putting my foot in my mouth because obviously I'm passionate about this book. That's why I wrote a book. <laughs> sure. I mean, I mean, that's why we'd you and I would have a conversation ahead of time. So you and I would have a conversation about, OK, what would you like to say? What are your issues with the cover? Um, maybe here's a good way to word that, um, you know, but, but the other thing to remember too, is like, if you have been signed a contract with an editor, that editor now should be just as much a part of your team as I am. 
I mean, the the idea is is that you know I will be there long term through the different editors, through the different you know publishers. You know, hope that's 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 the the ideal. Um, and but the supreme ideal is that I will hook you up with an editor who will also be there. <laughs> for the next four, five, six, like through your storied career, um, that the odds of that happening are much smaller. So, you know, it's, it's, we need to lean on the fact that I will be there long-term um, and not necessarily that particular editor, but I do, you know, you do need to think of that editor as being the third part of, of a three person team. Um, and one who is project managing once I've kind of given over the reins mm -hmm. with the contract. So, um, you know, you need to be comfortable reaching out to them and, and discussing things with them. Um, that being said, again, if you're, if you're concerned, like you sound like you're concerned, then I'm, I'll be more than happy to, to, to step in and, and have a conversation with the editor about the cover that you so intensely dislike. <laughs> well, this thing uh, you're playing, you know, you're playing a little bit of, of, of matchmaker, um, but you know, professional, of course, um, and you're trying to match up a great editor. So you put some time and thought into this editor that you've matched my book with to make sure that they're going to be hopefully, I don't, do you spend time thinking about what are these two personality types? Are they going to be able to work together well? Or is it more a question of do they have a, the best contract? Will this be the best opportunity for the book, even if the editor is maybe a little bit, um, oh, what's the word? Maybe just a little bit rougher on writers than this newbie debut author who's, who's coming along is maybe ready for? Um, definitely. I'll definitely think about that. Um, you know, for the most part though, you know, I can't, I don't know every editor personally. Um, and so what I tend to look at, and, and there's a lot of turnover, you know, there's a lot of editors leaving. Um, I mean, I just told you about the, that example. Um, and so what I focus more on is the imprints, you know, how do the imprints treat their writers? Um, and, you know, it, hopefully I'll know an editor who's been stable there for a while. Um, and those tend to be the first people I go to. But sometimes at the end of the day, you know, we're out on submission and, and you know, we've we've gone to, you know, 10 imprints and the 11th is the one that makes the offer. You know, if that 11th is not necessarily someone I know or if it is someone I know, but they leave in a month, you know, it's it's there's no guarantee that the the editor author relationship will be perfect. Um, and so that's kind of what I'm here for, to, to make sure that, you know, you feel smooth, you feel comfortable um, with everything happening. And, and if you get to a point where you're just not happy with your editor, well, def then definitely we can talk to the, the imprint, the publisher, um, mm -hmm. about shifting things around, um, things like that. But that, that's a pretty rare case. It's usually the other way around. <laughs> usually the, the editor is getting tired of the, of the, of the author. And, um, and that hasn't happened in my like any of my clients, but I've heard cases of that happening. Well, then I, I guess this would be a terrible question since your, your clients have never had that issue. But say that you, you actually were to sign me, I, I, I would probably create an issue. That sounds like something I would do. Uh, how would you go about resolving that? Well, I mean, it depends, you know, it depends on the size of the issue, right? Like I have, I mean, it's not like my clients, you know, I, I have some clients that are, you know, a little bit more demanding than others and that's, that's totally normal and totally fine. Um, and I can appreciate that side of them. Um, but you know, I, I navigate them that, that appropriately, um, with editors, you know, so maybe conversations will be happening that, you know, I'll talk to them about like, hey, do you do you feel like this editor is doing enough for you? And if, if you don't, like, let me explain to you what they are doing for you. Um, and I just try to be direct and honest and, and you know, 
talk through, you know, some of the, and, and a lot of times I find when, when a client is being particularly what they would think, what maybe some people would think is demanding, it's actually usually based out of insecurity, you know, like that they feel that their book isn't being given the attention they want or, you know, that, that the, that it's not, or even, you know, that it's not being treated the way that they, they, they dreamed. Um, and so it's more about me getting to the root of the insecurity and solving it for them. Okay. So we somehow miraculously, we navigate all of that. Uh, <laughs> and that's, that's because I've come to Mary Seymour who, who's got this down. <laughs> so that's gone smoothly for me. Now we're coming up on launch. How involved are you going to be in helping me prepare to market this book and, and get the word out as far as I can? And how how much time are you going to spend on the publisher making sure that they're fulfilling their uh, whatever commitments were negotiated, I assume, up front for what marketing they're going to provide? So in all honesty, you don't actually, unless you have a big major auction, um, publishers won't normally put in marketing plans in contracts, um, at least in my experience. Um, and you know, and again, my experience is limited to fiction. So nonfiction is a different animal. Um, it may be different. Um, so for those of you listening and thinking about writing nonfiction, um, I do not have the answers for you on that. But in terms of fiction, particularly debut fiction, it's pretty rare to have a marketing plan in the contract itself. Um, so what you're left with is usually what, um, what I like to do is, you know, suggest team meetings, um, via zoom, um, that, you know, that way the marketing team kind of sees my, my client's face. Um, I feel like if they see the face, then there's a little bit more of an oomph behind the, the, it's not just like this faceless writer behind the book that they're promoting. Um, and you know, we've been, I've been fairly lucky. My clients have had some really great enthusiastic um, marketing teams behind them. So I haven't had any, we haven't had any issues where I've felt the need to kind of step in and say, hey, you guys really aren't doing enough for my client work. Um, that, you know, that being said, what I like to tell clients, and I think this is true across the board, is always be focused on the next thing, right? Like always be focused on what the next project is because, you know, once it's in the hands of marketing, once it's being launched, it's you have no control like there's no control you have no idea like if it's gonna it, if it's gonna hit the new york times bestseller list or not if it's gonna you know tank if it's gonna there's nothing there's the only thing you can do is continue to promote the best way you can promote but you know in the end like either it's gonna sell or it's not and and if you're too focused on all of your energy on trying to get that book to sell then then you know you're not gonna if it doesn't do as well as you hoped you might spiral. Hopefully it'll do better and everybody will be really excited and really happy. But if you if you have another project that you're working on that you're excited about, that I'm excited about, that we can take to the editor and they can be excited about, um, then you know that that kind of spiral hopefully won't happen and, and you'll continue um, your career will continue. Um, but in terms of the actual day of launch, oh, I will be 100% cheerleading for you. If it's local, I'll go to your launch party. I'll try to be on your Zoom party if I can. Um, I will definitely be all over social media, even though I avoid it like the plague. When it's launch day, I'm on there. <laughs> I'm tweeting you. I'm Instagramming you. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm so excited for you. Um, and yeah. 
And then as far as the next project goes, uh, how involved do you want to be in that? If I've got three ideas, do you want us to talk through each of them and then you tell me which one is maybe the best suited for the market right now? Do you want updates as I'm, here's my, here's the first half of my rough draft, or do you want to wait until I have a full draft? How involved do you want to be? Um, that's actually individual as well. If if I have not sold you yet, then I'm heavily involved. You know, if 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 you know our first book we went out on submission with and it's not sold, or you know we're we're six months in and it looks like you know we're still we're still kind of not we don't know which which way the wind is blowing with that one, then I really want to know. Okay, let's see your pitches for your next projects. Um, let me see 10 pages. Um, you know, let's talk through outlines. Let's figure out where you're going. Um, and then we'll, you know, kind of develop our project, your project, your next project from there. And sometimes I'll tell them, okay, like this looks great. Go off and write it. Sometimes we'll be like, I'll read it chapter by chapter. Um, it just kind of depends on the situation. Um, but if you have a, if you have a deal, like particularly if you have, you know, a, you know, so some contracts, it'll be a two book deal, but it'll just be, they'll be standalone. So two standalone books. Then it's then I'm then I'm much more keen to say you need to get the editor involved in this conversation because they're technically the ones that are gonna you know buy the next you know like you're under contract with them for the next book. Um, but I'm more than happy to kind of do a first pass for you, um, kind of look at your pitch, kind of talk you know. And and most of my clients do want me to see it before they send it to their editor. But some some are perfectly comfortable sending you know their next project on to their their editor, and and I'll just see an email and be like, oh well, there it goes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but again, I, I like to, I cater it individually because you know people are individuals and and that's what you kind of have to do. So, so MF uh, MFA from Mills College that the cockatoo told you to go and and, and receive. Um, I love this idea of the Charlotte's Web cockatoo leaving Ooh. messages <laughs> for you. Um, uh, you wrote for a while. You submitted to agents. Are you still writing? Do you have plans to write eventually? Yes, I, I have dreams. <laughs> um, you know, in the middle of agenting, I, I had my 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 daughter, um, and you know, being a new mom was was no joke. Um, and so the thing, something had to give, and and I didn't want to give up agenting. Um, so the thing that gave was was writing. Um, I've done a few short stories here and there, um, you know, and I have some really fun ideas for for some novels. Um, I'd written a few novels before I before I um, had had my daughter, um, so I, I know I can do it. Um, but I was thinking when she was going to go to school <laughs> this year, she was supposed to go to TK. I was like, oh, I can start writing again, but you know, <laughs> global pandemic shelter in place she was home 24 7 so <laughs> that that kind of went out the window um, because i really you know i used the time that i had to, to to age it um basically but yeah it's i've found though the longer i've been an agenting the less my dreams are of being published and the more they are of of writing something you know that's 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 kind of something lovely and small and maybe even indie you know um i don't necessarily want to have a major launch anymore um, but not that I would turn it down, but you know, it just, I, I really enjoy being behind the scenes. So, yeah. That's interesting. It's not getting too personal. What, uh, when did that change for you? I, you know, I think it changed the more I learned about 
the industry. So the more I learned about the complicated, you know, how complicated it is, the path you need to navigate to get there, um, you know, that, that it's, uh, that the audience for certain genres are fairly small, that, you know, you don't necessarily need to be a household name to be a happy and successful writer. Um, and, you know, given that, you know, I, I do have a career as an agent, I would no longer need it, need writing to be a full-time career. So, you know, I don't know, there's a little bit of a balance there, but, um, I just really enjoy those like quiet, those quiet novels that, um, maybe don't get all the buzz and maybe don't even get picked up because they're quiet. Um, definitely try to sell a couple of those and been disappointed that, that there's no vision for it on the other end. But, um, but yeah, so that's what I'm drawn to. And, and, I think that's that's that kind of shifted in the last couple of years, actually. Let's, um, Mary Seymour, have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost? <laughs> no, but I have seen a unicorn. Go on. <laughs> yes, I was four, no, five, maybe six. I don't know. I was a young girl driving in the middle of the night out to our very rural, very dark cabin um and on that dirt road and there were just these two white unicorns that just ran by our car and i watched with shock and awe and then you know got home and was like is there wild horses around here did you know our neighbors but all our neighbors horses were brown so i don't know i still to this day have no idea what it was <laughs> and they had like glowing horns so yeah. you could actually see that yeah, I mean, not glowing, but they had horns. I don't know. I have no idea. Why well, don't you, you? You said it was dark. I didn't know if that would, you know, kind of help. <laughs> where they were going, like a headlight. Yeah, I don't know. It was day, but I always had a fascination with the unicorns, and then like they be, then the unicorns became kind of a craze. I think about ten years ago, and it just went all downhill from there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh, watching our time, and it's gone. Uh, I have. Uh, uh, used it, used it all, but my God, we we covered so much. I think this has just been a phenomenal episode. Uh, thank you so much for for making the time. My uh, final question for you uh, is always some variation of this, and that is, if there was uh, one or however many pieces of advice you would want to impart to every author listening that you think might make a huge difference in their career, might make them a better client for when they they reach you, uh, what would you like for them to take away from this? I would say two things. One, read a lot, you know, read in your genre, read, you know, um, I guess it's going to turn into three things. While you're reading, have a vision for what you want your career to look like, you know, like what kind of writer you want to be. Um, be prepared for that to change because it does change. But for the most part, try to have an, not an end point, but a point that you want to get to as a writer, meaning like, do you want to be a middle grade writer? Do you want to be, you know, a nonfiction writer? Do you want, um, and then hold on to that vision while you develop your drafts. Um, and also be always working on the next project. You know, when you're querying, you should be working on something new because that, that query could take a year to get an agent, you know, I mean, especially right now. <laughs> I'm ashamed to say that my response time has tripled um, over the last year. And I'm imagining that's probably the same for many agents. Um, you know, so, so always be working on that next project so that 
you know, you're just going to keep getting better and better and better. And that's going to, and, and by being able to focus on the next project, that's going to help you navigate a lot of the sort of emotional up and downs that, that come with publishing. Even if you do land, you know, do land the dream where you get the agent and then you get the deal and then you get, you know, you're still going to have the same fears, the same insecurities that you had as just a slush pile querying author, you know? So, um, in order to sort of help those insecurities and fears, have have your pat like keep your passion alight by looking forward and writing something new. Where uh, can esteemed audience find you online? Uh, learn more about uh, your submission requirements, all that good stuff. Um, you can find me at marycmore.com. That's C as in um, cat, um, and so it's just my middle initial. And um, again, I have pulled back on social media quite a bit, but I do. I will try to blog updates. I'll probably blog when this this uh, interview goes live. Um, and you know, that's 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 how you know what, where my submissions are. I'm I have very clear, detailed submission guidelines on my website. Um, and you can also find more out more about Kimberly Cameron at KimberlyCameron.com. Um, about my colleagues, um, some of whom. Um, oh, I would like to say since I'm close to submissions right now. In the meantime, you can query my colleagues, Lisa Avalera or Dorian Mafier. Both have very similar tastes that I do, and I work very closely with both of them. So, um, you know, you can feel very comfortable working with them. Uh, and both are welcome on the show anytime if you're listening and you'd like to come on. Uh, so far, Mary Seymour seems to have survived. <laughs> so, come on, we'll, we'll have a good time. Uh, Steve, audience, you know who I am, but go to middlegradeninja.com anyway, because beyond me, there's so many wonderful publishing professionals and authors waiting with their information for you to read through. Download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees and your free copy of uh, the Book of David, Chapter 1. They're free. Go nuts. Uh, at God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.